You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and I bring this show to KWMR listeners the first Monday of every month from Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. On Ocean Currents, we talk about our blue part of the planet, talking with experts about ocean conservation, science, issues, natural history, exploration, and expeditions. Ocean Currents is part of the West Marin Matters series. Every Monday at 1 p.m., you can tune in to learn about a local or global environmental or economic topic. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, and you can tune into Post Carbon and Think Local First Alternate Mondays. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Bob Schmieder to the KWMR studio. Bob is the founder and expedition leader of Cordell Expeditions, a nonprofit research group he founded in 1977 to explore and document the remote, offshore, hidden, dangerously accessible, deep granitic bank, fondly named Cordell Bank. I met Bob about nine years ago when I started working for the Cordell Bank Sanctuary, and every time we meet and talk, I am in awe of the significance of this expedition, his team, his vision, and the outcomes of his work. Bob, your story is unique in that your actions led to a significant act of conservation for the marine environment off our coast. I would love to welcome you to Ocean Currents. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Bob, your background is in science, but predominantly in physics and nuclear science. How and why did you get interested in exploring this place called Cordell Bank? (laughs) Well, like many people... uh... I sort of uh, am two persons in one. Uh, my day job was uh, as a physicist, um, and but that was sort of my left brain activity. The right brain activity always has been uh, environmental um, concerns, exploration, especially to uh, places that are undocumented and remote. And uh, when, when uh, Cordell Bank uh, became a, a possibility for me, um, it was uh, very much in line with what I had been thinking about and doing for many years already. How did you determine Cordell Bank? Did I mean, it's a big mystery to most Bay Area um, residents. So how did you know about it? I was a sport diver uh, for about five years. Uh, got certified as a scuba diver, and I was enjoying the sport. But uh, eventually, I, I wanted to do a project. Um, I am a project person. And so I wanted to uh, find something that would uh, carry me through a year or two or more and that maybe I could accomplish something by, um, by uh, doing something useful. So I, uh, I was ready to learn about something that could be done off the California coast that would be of, of long-term interest. By coincidence, in 1977, there was publicity about the radioactive wastes that were dumped uh, near the Farallon Islands. So I, I um, investigated those stories, which were first published in the Oakland Tribune. And as I was doing that, I looked at a chart of the, the um, uh, depth contours off the coast in Northern California, and there was Cordell Bank. Um, 
And so I, uh, I was fascinated by, uh, by what I saw there. There was one depth that was potentially divable with ordinary scuba depths. Um, and uh, uh, so I started asking about it. And to my surprise, I found that almost no one knew anything at all about it. So it was really quite easy to slip into that project and uh, and adopt it as a as a as a target. We were going to go and find out what was there, and why was it there. I can see the interest that was blooming. Whereabouts exactly is Cordell Bank for listeners that may not know in relationship to the coastline and also the Farallon Islands? Well, the easiest um, way to visualize this: if you stand at the lighthouse at Point Reyes and you look exactly due west. Um, 20 miles out is the horizon, and right there is where Cordell Bank is. Now, if you look exactly due south, 20 miles is the southeast Farallon Islands. And you look exactly due north, 20 miles again, it's Bodega Bay. So it's... um, it's uh, it's easily identified with uh, Point Reyes Light is smack in the center of those three twenty mile spokes. I've always told people that if they go to the lighthouse and they look for where the curvature of the Earth ends, that's where Cordell Bank begins. So that's great, um, right in the center there of those two significant points. So in the early days of planning for this expedition, what type of information did you find to plan it today in two thousand nine and We've just recently received um, or went out to get high, high-scale bathymetric information that shows us what the seafloor is like. But how did you plan for a dive not really knowing what the habitat was like? You had an idea that there were some shallow peaks, but how did you plan for that? Well, there were, there, there were really two, uh, two aspects to that. One was knowing that there were depths of 20 fathoms or 120 feet and knowing that the just from basic geological knowledge uh this is a hard rock surface so it was it's a hard rock offshore bank and it's going to support um a lot of life that that was obvious to me from just basic co- almost common knowledge what was perhaps more important in all of this was what was not known mm-hmm. what i could not learn i went to all of the local and important institutions, the California Academy of Sciences, UC Berkeley, uh, Bodega Marine Lab, and so on, uh, inquiring what did they know about Cordell Bank. And the usual answer was they didn't know anything. Um, There had been uh, some samples of the mud uh, dredged by um, Dallas Hanna at the California Academy of Sciences in in the 1940s. And those samples still existed and probably still do at the Academy. Beyond that, there was absolutely no information about Cordell Bank. And as I progressed month after month getting no information, it became more and more fascinating and more more and more important that we go there and find out what's there and document it. So you say we, and you were the initiator of this project. How did you gather your teammates? Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) Uh, what I did was uh, I uh, I was uh, an active member of the Sierra Club um, then as now, and we had a dive section called the Loma Prieta Dive Section of the Sierra Club. It was mostly Peninsula people, so I went to one of those meetings and announced that I was going to uh, form an expedition and I was looking for people to um, to uh, uh, participate. 
from that, we set up a meeting. Uh, so I got some volunteers then, and we set up a meeting at the uh, U.S. Geological Survey in Menlo Park that was attended by 40 people. This was all just word of mouth, 40 people. And before that night was over, all 40 had put in a check for $40 as a <laughs> as a war chest. Uh, it turns out to be woefully inadequate, but... Uh, that was the initial team uh, that, that we started with, and that's how it came about, just by word of mouth. Excellent. So did they have any idea what they were getting into as far as the depths that they were going to be diving? Yes, because we knew uh, we knew it was going to be uh, deep. Uh, in fact, people, um, pr- some professional biologists had told me that it would be deep and dark and so on. Of course, we knew it would be deep just because of the depth contours, the sh- the minimum water or minimum depth was indicated on the chart at uh, 20 fathoms, 120 feet. We knew we would be between 120 and maybe 180 feet. Beyond that, we we didn't think that we could use ordinary scuba, uh, and, and we didn't have access to any kind of professional dive gear or surface support to do that. So we all knew that we would be diving to 120 to 150 feet. Now, that's n- normally beyond the sport diving range. And so we knew that we we had a project in front of us to organize, plan, and carry this out um, safely, but beyond the sport diving limit. And that's mm-hmm. what took a lot of time. A lot of planning for safety on that. Yeah. Tell me about your first dive personally on Cordell Bank. Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, let's see. With your permission, I'll back up just uh, one yes, trip. Please. We We went out six weeks before to try and locate this 20-fathom point. And we only knew where it was within plus or minus about a mile on the chart. So I felt that we had to go out there ahead of time, put a marker on it so that when the team came back, we could actually just go down and dive. So we went out uh, on a survey trip, which uh, ultimately we did many such surveys. But on that particular trip, we did finally find this 20-fathom mark, and we dropped a marker on it. But six weeks later, when we came back, finally we were able to come back um, uh, because of weather, that marker was long since swept away. Um, And uh, so we had to search for the place again. What was the marker? What's the marker? Oh, it um, it was just an anchor. It was an anchor with a thin piece of line, Oh, and a and a bottle oh. that was floating on the surface, and and in our naivete, we thought that that might still be there six weeks later. How silly! This is pre National Marine Sanctuary designation, pre regulation, pre experience, pre experience. Okay, That's keep right. going. So we uh, we did uh, we searched for this uh, twenty fathom mark again a second time. This was on October twentieth, nineteen seventy eight. And um, actually using some birds that were uh, clustered in a certain area, we followed the birds, and sure enough, there was the shallow point, the 20-fathom mark. And we, we dropped an anchor with a descent line, and I and, uh, and one other person made the very first dive. So now I'm ready to answer, answer your question. Uh, as I descended... I was aware that there was a year of preparation behind us, lots and lots of meetings, practice dives, a lot of debate, discussion, argument, and so on. That's what I was thinking about. And I was wondering, would this be sufficient? Because we were far offshore in deep water, 
And I felt very um, vulnerable, very extended out there. But uh, as I went down, what I saw was what seemed to be weeds below me. But as I descended, I saw, I found that they were rockfish. They were clouds and clouds of rockfish. And I slowly descended among them and they, they slowly parted. And as they parted, I suddenly saw the bottom. The bottom was, was to my astonishment, colorful. There were orange and white and red colors. And it looked like a garden. It looked like a picture from a Sunset Magazine garden edition. And I was so amazed, even though I expected it, the visual uh, um, impression was so overwhelming. I just turned to my buddy and opened and closed my arms in a, a gesture saying, can you believe what we are seeing? And uh, so we we spent um, only about 15 minutes uh, bottom time total collected a bag of specimens. Um, we didn't have any camera, but um, as I moved around, I, I was amazed at the, at the roughness of the bottom, the cover, the, the density of the cover. It's more than 100%, which means there are plants and animals living on other plants and animals, um, and mostly how beautiful it was, visually beautiful. Um, of course, for for pure science, beauty is not a criterion. What lives there lives there, and that's we were there just to simply document it. But it was overwhelmingly beautiful, stunning. And um, uh, as we came back to the surface, um, it was it was a feeling of triumph, of satis- of completion, of satisfaction. Also, a little vindication that what I had said for so long and and bragged about having not seen it yet was that this is going to be a an incredibly lush, colorful, interesting environment. As I broke the surface, I knew instantly I would be back there year after year after year, and I was. That's a wonderful story. I love the way you described that, like it was just yesterday. And I bet you your teammates were just astounded and excited to get down there as well. We had, uh, by that time, out of that first group of 40, there was only one person left. That was me. <laughs> All of the others had given up. We had worked. We had come to Bodega Bay and loaded up a boat 19 times. It was the 19th trip um, that we, when we finally got out there and succeeded in diving. So, um, in fact, one of the divers uh, on the day we did succeed um, uh, had just joined the group the night before. Uh-huh. Um, I considered five divers an absolute threshold for doing anything. I wouldn't have done it with four. We had five. We had two teams, myself and one other person, and then I put the other three in, and they did their dive also successfully. Sounds like you had a lot of trips that were getting ready to go, and they were probably aborted due to the weather out of Bodega. Correct. That's correct. So that's how you lost people because they got tired of waiting. <laughs> that's right. The uh, the phrase uh, "this doesn't look like fun" was <laughs> was very commonly used. <laughs> yeah. We say that every once in a while now too. Actually, to I uh, I'm I'm suitably um, uh, I've calibrated on this. Uh, we turned around sometimes with. Later, with experience, we would not have turned around, but we would load up the boat, we would go out, and we would see some waves, and we would say, well, this doesn't look like fun, and we would turn around. But now, 
with experience, I know that about half the time, even if it doesn't look like fun, you you can sail out and it may it may be roaring on the coast and it'll be flat as glass on Cordell I've experienced that before. Have yeah. Okay. It's amazing. And yeah. you, no one would believe it. And you always yeah. take that risk to do that. Yeah. For those tuning in, I'm talking with Bob Schmieder, and he is the leader and founder of Cordell Expeditions, a nonprofit group that explored Cordell Bank uh, from 1977 on, and their efforts were extremely instrumental in the designation of Cordell Bank as a National Marine Sanctuary. I should also mention Bob is the captain of the Cordell Explorer, the vessel that was used to explore this area. So... Bob, as far as the diving goes, one of the things I've always been curious about, and you've probably experienced physically yourself, is what are the the currents like under the water? I've 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 been down there in the submersible, and I've heard other um, other folks that have dove on Cordell Bank talk about how when they've dove in a submersible, the submersible they can feel the current. Have you felt that current underwater at Cordell? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to uh, explain. We've done all of our diving just during the months of September, October, and November, mostly in October. And there's real good reason for that. The weather is calmest in October. uh, And the the winds and the currents are lowest. So we haven't really attempted to to be there, say, in February, which which would be very, very difficult. The currents are well documented, though, or have been well known since the days of Edward Cordell, eighteen sixty-nine. Um, they they will rush uh, past at a knot or two knots, and as you know, a knot current for a scuba diver is a very very difficult current to work in. Um, so we've experienced conditions at Cordell Bank where there's absolutely zero current, where there might be visibility of almost 100 feet, where the water temperature is the standard 55 or maybe 57 or 58 degrees, all of that would make for a very comfortable dive. Mm -hmm. We've also experienced um, visibility down at uh, 20 feet, uh, mostly because of plankton bloom, currents up to a knot or so, um, and uh, temperatures that were uh, significantly colder. And when when the conditions are like that, the dive is more difficult. We have to be more careful. And in some cases, uh, I just would cancel the diving and we wouldn't attempt it. Mm-hmm. Were there any interesting personalities that um, stand out in your memory as far as your experiences with Cordell Bank? Well, of course, everyone, everyone has a personality. We had, um, we had a core team. Um, myself, uh, Don Dvorak, Bill Cruz, Tom Santolina, Sue Esty. Um, we're the ones who were there sort of year after year, and a number of other people came and and might have worked with us for several years and, and then moved on to some other interests. Uh, one group uh, from Sacramento, uh, four divers, uh, we called them the SACTO team, and these were these were very tough, uh, durable, enthusiastic, uh, innovative, uh, resourceful divers, and um, so the, so they had a personality and they had a lot of fun and created a lot of fun. Um, we once in a while we would get a person who who didn't quite understand the philosophy. This is opportunistic diving. This is not sport diving. It's not science diving in the sense of systematic um, 
collection of specimens according to a prearranged plan. We had to be versatile. We had to be adaptable because the conditions would change, and and we wouldn't know exactly what we were getting into. So we had to be opportunistic, uh, collect specimens, take photographs, when and where we could in order to maximize the information. Now and then we would get a person on the team who didn't quite get that, and that would be a little uh, awkward sometimes. Mm, I can imagine. So and one of the things that you've done in addition to the follow-up with the sanctuary, but you wrote a book about Cordell Bank called Ecology of an Underwater Island, and it was published in 1991. This is the only book written about this unique ecological area. And in your book, you coined Cordell Bank as a long-lost underwater island. Yet it is an isolated somewhat series of rocks in this underwater bank. But what is what did that term underwater island mean for you? Well, island uh, as a generic term, mo- most people think of island as being a place like Hawaii, um, uh, uh, some rocks that stick out of the ocean with a lot of uh, plants on them. But a generic meaning of island is an isolated place. So you could have an, iso- an island, say, uh, on land, as long as it's isolated. Um, a game preserve, for instance, uh, could be uh, considered an island. Um, on real islands, uh, emerged islands, if, if any animal, say, uh, a fox, tried to go off of the island, he would die. Here on Cordell Bank, it, it's like a mountain. It's shaped like a mountain, but it's completely underwater. But what lives on that mountain, if, they, if they, those things tried to leave, they would also die. So functionally, Cordell Bank is an island. It's insular, and the things that live there are stuck there. It's true. I never thought of it that way. Was it truly an island, though, historically, geologically speaking? How did Cordell Bank form? Was it ever an island? Yeah, it really was an island. It was a true, real, emerged island. Um, uh, You know that the level of the ocean has gone up and down over geological time. Uh, it it uh, it goes in oscillations. Right now, it's rather high, uh, but twenty thousand, eighteen thousand years ago, it was about almost a hundred meters lower than it is now. Mm-hmm. So, San Francisco Bay was a valley you could walk around in there. Um, the the Fairlands were part of an of a chain, a long peninsula, very much like the San Francisco uh, Peninsula is now. So Cordell Bank was emerged as an island. Then there was a, a deeper part, and then the Farallon Islands were emerged uh, uh, and actually connected. This is the the Farallons and Cordell Bank and a number of other places are all part of a granite or a granitic block called the Selenian Block, and the um, the eastern boundary of that block is the San Andreas Fault. So that block slides along. That's when we have movement on the San Andreas Fault, that block slides. Cordell Bank moves about three to five centimeters north every year. I know. We're going to have to move our office in a couple of years. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think some other parts of the Selenian block are Bodega Head, mm-hmm. I th- Point Arena, parts of Point Arena maybe? Uh, I don't think so far up. I think Cordell Bank is actually the northernmost uh-huh. known uh, uh, limit of that Selenian block. I think also down to uh, Pinnacles National mm-hmm. Monument. I've, mm-hmm. I've read that in some other, maybe it was even in your book, yeah. just to get an idea of where this is all spread out. And, of course, yeah. there's been other geological movements And Salinas. It's named after Salinas. Right, which it is outcrops in that general area. There. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Wonderful. 
So I want to ask you a question. I'm hoping we have enough time for this. How did Cordell Bank get its name? Well, that um, that's a story I discovered in the uh, National Archives as well as some local archives, uh, including the Bancroft Library at Berkeley and um, San Francisco State Library and other places. Edward Cordell um, was born in Germany uh, in 1828 and came to America. There was a there was a revolution in Europe in 1849, and he and a lot of other people escaped. Cordell came to the United States and came to work as a draftsman for the U.S. Coast Survey. He was so good uh, at his job that he was eventually sent to the West Coast and given charge of a ship called the Marcy, a sailing ship. He went out on, on, his, on this ship with assistance and would measure the depths up and down the coast and also the uh, Sacramento-San Joaquin Rivers. Um, in those days, 1865 through 1870 or so and, and other years, the surveying on the West Coast was in charge, uh, was, was under the authority of George Davidson, who's very famous, mm-hmm. Mount Davidson, Davidson Glacier, Davidson Seamount, Davidson Seamount, Davidson Current. Davidson had returned from Alaska in the preparation for purchase of Alaska and was coming down the coast and made a cast of the lead off Point Reyes and came up with a very shallow depth, 20 fathoms. And he remembered that, but that was in 1853. In 1869, 13 years later, he sent Edward Cordell out to search for this shoal west of Point Reyes. Cordell went out in in June of 1869, found it, mapped it, wrote his report, sent it to Washington. But Davidson thought that it ought to be named Davidson Bank. Uh-huh. So Davidson did not do the normal thing of just Im- immediately recommend to the Coast Survey Office that they name it Cordell Bank. Six months later, Cordell died accidentally, prematurely, age of 41. And uh, a year or two after that, Davidson sort of relented. The Coast Survey named it Cordell Bank in Edward Cordell's honor. Wonderful. That's a wonderful description. Now, Edward Cordell Cordell also was a surveyor on the East Coast. I understand he was mapped Stellwagen Bank, which is also part of the National Marine Sanctuary Program. Yeah, it's a a wonderful uh, connection. Stellwagen also was from Germany. Mm Mm-hmm. There are many um, aspects of their lives that are in common. Their handwriting is almost indistinguishable. Um, Stellwagen was, I'm uh, sorry, uh, Cordell was Stellwagen's draftsman when Stellwagen discovered what is now called Stellwagen Bank, which is also a National Marine Sanctuary. Stellwagen Bank lies outside of Boston Harbor. Cordell Bank lies outside of San Francisco Bay. Stellwagen Bank and Cordell Bank are about the same size and about the same depth and oriented about the same way. Yeah, a lot of similarities. A lot of uh, similarities. Wonderful. Well, we'll keep talking, but we are coming up just about on the half-hour break here. We've been talking with Bob Schmieder, the leader and founder of Cordell Expeditions, the group that explored Cordell Bank before it became a National Marine Sanctuary and through their work actually was very instrumental in designation of the sanctuary. So we'll be back in just a few moments uh, with Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock. Stay with us.
we're back. This is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. On today's show, I have with me Bob Schmieder, the founder and leader of Cordell Expeditions, a nonprofit research group that dove on Cordell Bank on scuba starting in 1977, and their work was instrumental in the designation as a national marine sanctuary. So, Bob, you have done what many other people haven't or may have attempted to do. Have other people contacted you about how to dive scuba at Cordell Bank? Yes, uh, not not too often, but now and then I get an inquiry. Um, uh, it, it would be one of two things. The first way would be someone says, I would like to dive there, and my usual response is, uh, okay, and I would like to go with you, <laughs> not not for the um, for the pleasure of it, although it would be pleasure, but because of the safety of it. Cordell Bank is not an easy dive; it's not a place you go and and just say I'm going today to dive there. Uh, it's a project you have to prepare; otherwise, it would be very dangerous. Yes, we get a lot of questions, not a lot, but every once in a while, and it's a tough answer because. Um, there's new regulations that do not prohibit that do not allow anchoring on Cordell Bank right now, mm-hmm. um, or there's no take of specimens and whatnot, and there's just so many unknowns and the danger of it. So we we really discourage people to dive yeah. there ourselves. The uh, the other in- kind of inquiry I get, uh, the second kind of in- uh, inquiry is um, uh, is the following. Oh yeah, I've dived on Cordell Bank, and I say, really. Um, well, how deep did you dive? Oh, we were really deep. We were a, we were more than 50 feet deep. And I knew that they were confusing it with someplace else because Cordell Bank is more than 120 feet deep. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to make that mistake. I've had people tell me about Cortez Bank. Mm-hmm. And I think they get them confused. But I don't know if you yes. can dive at Cortez. Can I, you? I have dived at Cortez oh, Bank. Oh, really? Yes. I know it's a surf spot and a mm-hmm. uh, big swell there because it is yep. really shallow. Yep. So very different. Well, it has some of the same species. Um, it has the California hydrocoral and, and a lot of uh, algae that are in common. But, uh, of course, every place is, is unique. Bob, I understand recently or in the last few years a, a very special person contacted you about diving on Cordell Bank. Did you follow up with them and participate in this dive? It's Jean-Michel Cousteau, the son of uh, Jacques Cousteau. Uh, I've known John Marcel for quite some years, and in 2005, um, his organization uh, contacted me and indicated their interest in diving at Cordell Bank because they were generating a program involving all of the National Marine Sanctuaries, and they were going to every single one, diving uh, and capturing the uh, the experience and the environment uh, in their video program. So, of course, I was... I was pleased, um, and I uh, I was certainly available. And so, Jean Michel and his team did come in uh, 2005. We went out to Cordell Bank. Uh, it took us two days. The first day to find the place and uh, put a put an anchor a descent line down. The second day to wait for the weather. The third day to wait for the weather, and the fourth day to go out again. And their t- uh, team did dive, um, and uh, w- I was able to put them on on exactly uh, the shallowest point, which uh, I could see in their video was very familiar to me because I've seen it numerous times um, when I've dived there. 
Um, so they were very pleased. Uh, they um, they uh, described it as a very difficult dive. The conditions were difficult. Uh, they said it was the most difficult of all of their of all of their dives, and uh, were complimentary to my team, which I passed on to my team, and uh, with thank you very much. Cousteau people did eventually uh, put together the program called America's Underwater Treasures. They also published a very gorgeous book um, with very handsome photographs uh, about that program, and that book is available, and the DVD of that program is available through the um, through the Cousteau organization in Santa Barbara. I think it's also available through KQED. That's Correct. right. Yeah, yeah that's it was right. showing on KQED, so people can go there. We were involved because there was teacher workshops going on coincidentally with that, with KQED, so we were doing some workshops with that as well. Your initial interest in exploring this area was to discover what lived there and document it. When did you start talking to the National Marine Sanctuary Program and NOAA, or when did they start talking to you? That was in 1981. Um, I was only vaguely aware of the National Marine Sanctuary Program, and there weren't as many sanctuaries designated uh, at that time, of course. But someone, and I've forgotten who now, uh, suggested that I contact them and uh, and tell them that we were in the process of exploring and describing Cordell Bank. So I did. And their response seemed to be enthusiastic. They they responded with great interest, uh, wanted to know more. I I compiled a preliminary report of species that we had identified and uh, the the shallow places, the maps, the and the logs of what we had done. Uh, and um, pretty soon, um, they the sanctuary programs office said we would like you to nominate Cordell Bank to be a National Marine Sanctuary. This is a procedural issue. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I can't do that. Uh, we don't know enough about it yet. Um, it would be pr- uh, premature to do that. And so I was able to put them off for maybe a year almost, and they came back with a vengeance and said, you must, you will nominate Cordell Bank to be a sanctuary and I said, well, I I can only do that if we can learn more about it. And they said, we would like to give you some money to help you. Wow, you're pretty smart. Uh, <laughs> well, I didn't do it uh, with purpose, but uh, but it was effective nevertheless. We don't. It doesn't work that way for us. <laughs> <laughs> they did support us, um, um, uh, not extensively, but uh, it was important to us, uh, financial support. It, it enabled us to to assure the boat and to, and the equipment that we needed. Uh, of course, n- no one in my group um, ever took any money. There was no salaries, no payments of any kind. Mm-hmm. This was a 100% complete volunteer activity. Um, so, so the money went to things like buying fuel and buying uh, chemicals uh, to preserve the specimens, jars, uh, things like that. But with that support, uh, we were able to get to a point where I I felt, if not totally comfortable, at least accepting of um, the, the the request to um, to nominate it, which I did with a letter, and that's how it got started. So once it was nominated, who did you nominate it to? Well, there was a regular sanctuary uh, programs office, and uh-huh. there was a director of the of the sanctuary mm-hmm. programs division. So I, I oh, wrote a letter itself. to the um, to the Sanctuary Programs Division. 
Now, also during this expedition time, you had a lot of media coverage. You've had I, yes. there's newspaper clippings <clears throat> in your book, and um, a couple of years ago, we got to see some of the video footage that you compiled from TV coverage. How did that get initiated? Well, we were very um, lucky. Um, the man who had written the articles about the radioactive waste off the Farallons, a man named Fred Garretson, who worked for the Oakland Tribune, he was their science writer. Uh, he, I contacted him to learn more about about those uh, radioactive wastes and whatever else is known on the California coast. And we became friends. So as our project progressed, he was aware. And then he wrote the very first articles. In fact, the first article was published before we did our first dive. Um, and it was called uh, something like... Um, um, voyage to a, an, an underwater island, yeah. uh, something like that. And then he he wrote a follow-up article. And those articles were then picked up by other, other newspapers um, and distributed. And so we had an on, ongoing publicity during those years. That's excellent. Yeah. And that, did you think that helped build support for the designation of the sanctuary? I don't really know. Um, the sanctuary, I think the... Um, I think the sanctuary program was feeling starved uh, during the entire two years, two, two administrations, the Reagan administration, the eight years, there was not a single sanctuary designated. Mm-hmm. And Cordell Bank is a, was a very non-controversial uh, um, candidate for sanctuary. There were other candidates that were that were more controversial and would have struggled more, I think, to get through, uh, through the administration. But Cordell Bank had had no problems at all. Even so, the administration didn't progress on it, and eventually the um, the U.S. Congress took it up. Uh, Barbara Boxer, uh, Diane Feinstein, uh, Doug Bosco, and others created an act of Congress. And when uh, President George Bush... Senior became president. His signature uh, signed it into law at the very first uh, environmental action that he did as president. How did you feel when that happened? Very proud. Yeah. I And I continue to be proud. Um, the sanctuary is protected by an act of Congress. All other sanctuaries are protected by regulation within the Sanctuary Programs Division. So I feel confident that um, not only is it protected legally, statutorily, but now, of course, it's in the wonderful hands of of uh, the manager and yourself and others who are uh, who are uh, taking care of it uh, and and bringing it forward uh, in a in a wonderful way. That's very nice of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's amazing. When I came on, there was only one, no, two staff, mm-hmm. and uh, now we have about eight staff. I always forget exactly how many because we have a couple of part-time folks, but it's pretty amazing to see it grow. It's so. amazing to me. Um, uh, it's not amazing in the sense that it wasn't foreseen. I foresaw all of this, but, you know, so many things we tried don't work. This one worked. And so it's exciting every time I think of it that it actually happened, and it is happening and and we can look back and say something we did helped save a piece of this world. And Amazing. that's what we were after. I hope people can take lessons of that, that small acts can actually turn into really big acts through uh, the work that you did. What were some of the protections that you wanted to see 
as a designated as a national marine sanctuary. From your observations, you've had a unique experience that hardly anyone has of actually seeing this place. You must have a, a personal association of how, what you wanted to see protected. Yeah, I did. And it, it doesn't um, agree exactly with uh, uh, other people or other groups' um, um, desires or even necessarily with the management plan. But here is my personal perspective. Um, I've seen what lives on the bottom, and I've seen how fragile it is. So I was concerned from the very beginning, from the very first dive, when I saw a lot of broken California hydrocoral that grows so slowly mm -hmm. and so many other organisms live on and depend and are even obligate commensals with the California hydrocoral. I was concerned with the practice that fishermen have or had of dropping heavy weights on the bottom to feel for the bottom to get their bait on the bottom. Uh, that's terribly destructive. So that was the number one um, concern that I had. I was not so concerned about oil exploration because there is no oil on Cordell Bank. It's a, it's a granite rock. And so protection from mechanical damage like anchoring and, and dropping lead weights on on the bottom that would damage the benthic organisms there. That was my principal concern, and I'm thrilled that that uh, is now uh, protected uh, on this sanctuary. Yeah, through the recent management plan, they saw a lot of evidence through the submersible dives of fishing gear. And now in the 50-fathom area, the shallowest part of Cordell Bank, it's only hook and line allowed, no, uh -huh. no long lines and whatnot. But I think you bring up a good point that may not be enough. Well, the the other um, the other uh, group uh, or other aspect that concerned us was the fish, of course, and uh, we saw changes, significant changes in numbers of fish um, over the time that toward the last years that we were diving there, we saw far fewer fish. That was the nineteen eighty four eighty five. Uh, but I sort of left that in the hands of, of wise managers. Um, th they have means for sampling the fish, for managing the stocks, and I knew that that would be taken care of. My concern was for God's little creatures. That habitat, yeah. yeah. It's vital for the, the, the rest habitat. of those animals. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, you also did some diving outside of Cordell Bank, and I, I've heard you talk about diving at some of the Farallon Islands. Can you talk about that a little bit? Was that part of this expedition time? It was uh, It was actually uh, in the early uh, part. Uh, the very first dive, we, we carried out some practice dives. Um, and so uh, this was also in conjunction with uh, the herbarium at UC Berkeley. Uh, Dr. Paul Silva uh, is the um, curator of algae there at Berkeley. Um, I became lifelong personal friends with him, and he pointed out that there w was no collection of algae from southeast Farallon, middle Farallon, or north Farallons. Subtitle algae? That's correct, mm -hmm. subtitle. So um, uh, it, it was kind of obvious we would go there, and we would call it a <laughs> that's right, call it a practice dive or whatever, call it an expedition. But we went to all of those places especially including North Fairlawns, which is an absolutely fascinating place. Um, and we went there multiple times, uh, collected algae and, and apparently the first uh, subtitle algae collections. Um, at North Fairlawns, we also discovered a tunnel that is completely cut 
from one side of one of the large rocks to the other. We, It's com- completely underwater and apparently was unknown before. We swam in one end and 100 feet later swam out the other end to our absolute astonishment. This must have been fun. <laughs> I can't even imagine yeah. what the invertebrates encrusted on these rocks must have looked like. I mean, this is an area untouched by humans. The um, The dominant visual impression or reaction that you have is the color. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason the color is there which you normally would not see at depth. Um, You wouldn't see the red and yellow color because there is no red or yellow light at that depth. What happens, and we had to to explain this, was uh, you have lots of blue light, and the blue light causes fluorescence. So uh, organisms like Corianactus, the little anemone. The strawberry anemones. The strawberry anemones will take in blue light and put out red light. And so there they are glowing, sort of like minerals under a black light. And it's exactly the same process. It's fluorescence. Um, so even at 150 feet, you'll see, you'll see what looks like just intense colors. Now, it's actually kind of muted. And divers are usually a little bit narked with the nitrogen. So their perception is enhanced, shall we say. <laughs> But um, but that's the visual impression you have with all these colors. That's amazing. This year it was pretty significant for you. You transferred all of your samples to the California Academy of Sciences. What was the significance of this transfer for you? Well, that was uh, was certainly uh, a very satisfying event. Uh, I am I am deeply uh, grateful to the people who arranged for this to happen. Over all those years, um, we had collected specimens um, and documented them thoroughly, um, giving each one a unique number, sorting them into taxonomic uh, classes. I would distribute the specimens to uh, professional biologists, uh, marine biologists in various places, L.A. County Museum, Cal Academy, the National Museum in Washington, and so on. But I retained um, custody, possession of the bulk of the specimens that we collected with the hope and expectation that someday they should be accessioned into some permanent collection because they do represent an important historical collection as well as potential for um, for research. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, through, the, through the good efforts of the sanctuary management as well as uh, Bob Van Syke at Cal Academy, we were able to uh, transfer all of them to the Academy who will now have them forever. And they're the best possible home they could have. That's really exciting. I know that our science team is really thrilled because we're it's hard to protect something you don't know a lot about. Mm-hmm. And we haven't had the opportunity to really sample the invertebrates of Cordell Bank. So you can only identify so much with photographs and video footage. So I know they are thrilled to assemble a species list. Well, you know, even if if sampling uh, continues or is expanded, even if the the current collection is eclipsed by future sampling, the current collection is historically important because um, relative abundances, even species types, um, the, the historical collection is is very important to anyone who who wants to understand the ecology of a place like Cordell Bank and understanding how it could change over yeah, time. That's I know right. one of our biggest concerns at Cordell is 
the threat of invasive species, like uh, some, there's invasive tunicates that are along the coast here, uh, Didemnum helii, I believe is the species, and it acts like pancake batter, just smothers habitat. And if you can imagine cordell bank smothered in one animal. I don't want to imagine that. It's pretty scary. And <laughs> so I think, you know, having a, a voucher specimens of what lives there now and what lived there in 1977 on is really important. And that's just one of the things we're trying to protect against is um, any type of uh, effluent being dumped there or any type of uh, cruise ship dumping that's no longer allowed in the sanctuary waters to help prevent against that. So that's exciting. Why do you think it's important for people to know about places like Cordell Bank? And why do you think they should care? Cordell Bank is uh, very much like... um, a museum that you might be familiar with. Why Why would we have a museum on land, uh, a place that you would go to to see things? Um, we have these museums because they are a protected environment, a managed um, environment, as well as a source of knowledge. Uh, when, when they're studied, they're system, systematized, um, interpreted. Um, Cordell Bank is very much like a museum, but it's it's remote. It's not as accessible to the public. And that's why the sanctuary management team, the office, and the public relations and the interpretive um, programs are so critical because they are the portal uh, for for the public to get access to this resource. Cornell Bank is as as diverse, as interesting as any museum anywhere on land. It's just more difficult to get to. And probably um, you won't go there personally, but you could go there with the, with the media that we have available and now with the staff uh, um, able to, uh, to present it and interpret it. That makes it uh, feasible. That's great. We have a new video coming out called Cordell Bank Blue Water Oasis, of which you're featured in mm-hmm. as part of that. And that will be on exhibit at the Bear Valley Visitor Center at Point Reyes National Seashore in the next few months. I hope we'll also have it on DVD available for people to get, and we'll be distributing that to schools and other visitor centers as trying to spread the word about that beautiful place. It's been uh, a long journey creating that video. Are there any last words you have in regards to what you hope to see Cordell Bank like in the next 20 years? Well, this year marks the 20th anniversary of the designation of it. What do you hope the next 20 years will be like for Cordell Bank? Um, I would, I would like, uh, I would like to see it, see the management uh, sufficiently supported um, to to not only continue but expand the kind of work that they've already done. Um, we need publications. We need a research program. There is a re- research manager. Uh, we need research program. Um, Cordell Bank is sufficiently special that it deserves to be studied. Uh, a body of data accumulated. Um, we started that. It should be continued. Uh, there should be uh, resources to interpret that. Um, Cordell Bank is only one of the National Marine Sanctuaries, they all deserve similar um, activities. 
Um, and I would be I would be very happy. It would be it would feel like fulfillment to me if uh, uh, if that continues. I assume the protection will continue into the future. It's not a not a question of whether Cordell Bank will be a national marine sanctuary. What I would what I would be very happy about is if the resources available to Cordell Bank and the other sanctuaries, uh, Cordell Bank as my particular interest, were sufficient to extend and expand the um the the research in the area um the you know the whales and the birds are a critical part of uh, this environment as well as the invertebrates that are my favorites so that maybe 20 years from now we could see another book or less time uh, 10 years 5 years maybe another book about Cordell Bank um more extensive than than mine and containing a lot more images and information about it. That would be wonderful. That's exciting. Well, for some of those, there are ways people can get involved regarding how to help support that. Um, Certainly, the National Marine Sanctuaries Act needs to be reauthorized every so many years, and that's a pretty significant piece of legislation to authorize the National Marine Sanctuary Program to exist. So keeping an eye on that and um, being supportive of your sanctuaries, and that is, is important. Also, we have a National Marine Sanctuary Foundation and they are really working hard to help raise the elevation of the importance of these areas to bring in funds. So writing to your National Marine Sanctuary Foundation and finding out if uh, there's ways you can help would certainly be another way to help keep Cordell Bank on the map and, and expanding and the, those things that we can provide and keeping it healthy. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the sanctuary's designation. And, Bob, it's it's so gratifying to sit with you and talk with you, and I just want to thank you for all your work in the designation of the sanctuary and prior and keeping in touch with us today with all your other volunteer divers and collaborators. Um, It's just such a neat story to continue to share. And I'm so thrilled to share this on Ocean Currents, this radio program. So thank you for coming today. Well, it's uh, my great pleasure. Thank you. To keep this story alive, we'll be starting an oral history project at the sanctuary this year. And we'll be working with Bob and some of the other significant participants in the Cordell Expeditions dives. Um, We want to keep this story alive and keep it going. So we will be working hard on that and finding ways to share that with the public and hopefully on this radio program too. So please stay tuned for that. We're going to wrap it up. We've been talking with Bob Schmieder from Cordell Expeditions. He's the leader and founder of this nonprofit group that researched Cordell Bank prior to it becoming a National Marine Sanctuary in 1989. And you can learn more about Cordell Bank itself, um, about what the sanctuary today does at Cordell, C-O-R-D-E-L-L, bank, at N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. Um, You can also find past episodes of Ocean Currents at that website or subscribe to our podcast, as well as an informational listserv of events that we may host Um, Bob also has a website to learn about the Cordell Expeditions era, and that is at www.cordell.org. Thanks again for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. Please stay with us. We are the first Monday of every month, part of the West Marin Matters series, and we will see you next month. Thanks for tuning in.
listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks for helping to protect the ocean.